Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You could use a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast, or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's www.outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Radio Havana, Cuba, France 24, and NHK Japan. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. An interview with human rights lawyer and climate campaigner Tessa Kahn. She discusses the outcome of the COP28 climate summit in Dubai, which many felt was an inadequate response to the climate emergency being experienced across the globe. The majority of countries and activists demanded a timeline to end fossil fuels. What was delivered was a watered-down version calling for a transition away from fossil fuels without specifying a schedule. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. After two weeks of talks, tonight the International Climate Conference in Dubai looks headed for failure, thanks to a seemingly unbridgeable divide over the future of fossil fuels. Critics slammed the draft text, calling it a gift to lobbyists for big oil and gas. Climate activists and former U.S. Vice President Al Gore posted this on X, or what used to be known as Twitter. The world desperately needs to phase out fossil fuels as quickly as possible, but this obsequious draft reads as if OPEC dictated it word for word. It is even worse than many had feared. Well, outside one of the venues in Dubai, activists kept up the pressure on the negotiators inside, demanding an end to fossil fuels. A range of other measures to reduce greenhouse gas emissions may be included in the final text, but these protesters, along with more than 100 countries, are saying now is the time to talk about ending the era of black gold known as oil. Well, my first guest is a climate change and human rights lawyer. Tessa Khan is the founder and executive director of Uplift, an organization pushing to end the dependency on fossil fuels. So I'd like to get your thoughts on what is happening at the conference, particularly the, this outrage over the wording of, of this final text. Yeah, I mean, in short, I think the negotiations are at an impasse in that there is a clear recognition from the majority of countries in the room that, as the science says, you cannot address climate change without addressing fossil fuels. The burning of fossil fuels is what drives the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions. So there is not a world in which we stay within that critical threshold of 1.5 degrees that governments have agreed to without phasing out fossil fuels. Mm. But, of course, there are a handful of big oil and gas producing countries, um, as well as, I think it's important to say, a number of developing countries who don't think they should be made to phase out fossil fuels without 
supportive assistance, financial assistance from countries that have industrialised off the back of fossil fuels. So, you know, it's a very difficult point in the negotiations and it's hard to see how the COP presidency can bridge that. The, the, the man in charge of this conference told reporters yesterday um, that the draft text was a useful tool to determine the red lines for every country. I, I heard him say that and then I thought, well, this is COP28. I mean, we're not at COP1 or 2. Are we supposed to be beyond identifying red lines? What do you say? I agree with you. I mean, especially, you know, what we've been hearing, you know, in terms of what's required to meet the climate goals that countries have agreed to, you know, in Paris, the historic Paris Agreement, where everyone committed to staying within 1.5 degrees. Just this year, we've heard again and again from the UN's own agencies, from the International Energy Agency, that in a world where we stay within 1.5 degrees, we can't have more fossil fuels. So I agree that the red lines have been clear and that it is incredibly disappointing to get to this point in the negotiations and not have a solution. Some have said that this outcome was inevitable with a major oil producer like the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, hosting the conference. Yeah, I understand that cynicism. I mean, it's true that there have been other countries that have major fossil fuel industries that have hosted COPs before and we've had outcomes. Um, but the fact, I think, that the president of this COP is still occupying a position as CEO of a national oil company does raise some real questions over the integrity of the process. And I think the fact that despite as I said, the majority of countries wanting a fossil fuel phase out, the fact that that language didn't appear in the last draft mm -hmm. does start to raise some real questions. The one good bit of news in 2023 is that the economics of the phase out of fossil fuels are increasingly strong. So the profitability, the fact that there is a massive economic imperative to shift away from fossil fuels towards renewable forms of energy, there is demand for those, the technology exists, it is possible to scale those up. You know, I think if oil and gas companies and oil and gas producing countries were serious about their long-term economic future, they would be pivoting their business models away from oil and gas and towards renewable energy and the low zero carbon technologies of the future. Because as mm -hmm. I said, we are in that transition now and the imperatives exist beyond climate change to move away from fossil fuels. As the International Energy Agency said just a few months ago, the oil and gas industry is still only responsible for 1% of mm. the investment in renewables globally. It is an industry that is still overwhelmingly committed to extracting and burning fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So yes, there are some signs of recognition that the future lies in those alternative forms of energy, but the big oil and gas producers, and I should say, you know, in the UK where I am, yeah. the UK government has just approved a major new oil and gas field as well. So it's not just the Gulf states who are, I think, doing absolutely the wrong thing here. There's talk about carbon capture as a solution. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is simply that it is not scalable commercially in any way that makes it uh, a technology that allows us to continue with business as usual. So there is a tiny amount of carbon capture and storage that is functional at the moment globally and it would only capture a fraction a tiny fraction of the emissions that we're currently creating and if you look at plans where we continue to burn fossil fuels and indeed increase expansion of fossil fuel production that relies on quantities of carbon capture and storage that you know we've heard experts again like the international energy agencies 
chair say are simply fantasy it's not affordable it doesn't exist at scale and it is a huge risk for us mm. to rely on those technologies materializing in the future at the scale that we need them and what about the economic opportunities for the global south to leapfrog um, from you know from where they are right now in terms of generating energy and just bypass fossil fuels dirty fuels and go to sustainable fuels i'm thinking about africa for example not everyone has to be nigeria with with its oil you know, the Sahara Desert, there's enough surface area there if you wanted to put solar panels there to power the entire continent. Where is the economic imperative to make that a reality? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Africa has hands down some of the best solar resources in the world. And, you know, let's be clear that bypassing fossil fuel development isn't just what's needed to preserve a safe climate and, and continents like Africa are some of the most vulnerable to climate change in the world. But it, you would also have all of these other benefits, including reducing air pollution, which takes a massive toll, especially in developing countries when coal and so on are burned. So I think it's absolutely right that we should expect that those countries embrace those opportunities. They absolutely do, though, need financial support and technological support from countries, industrialised countries, who have been promising to provide support for those countries to transition for many years now. Um, and I think that that's at the moment the missing ingredient, as well as private investment from, from the private sector to ensure that they can leapfrog dirty technologies and move straight to the clean technologies of the future. Tessa Khan, excellent talking with you. That interview is from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Also available at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. On Friday, December 8th, the U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council binding resolution that called for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. Thirteen of the 15 members voted for it, the U.K. abstained, and the U.S. voted against and vetoed it. Following the veto, the U.S. Defense Department pushed through a sale of 14,000 tank shells to Israel without congressional approval. Israel began this week by attacking a U.N. refugee school, a convoy of Palestinian ambulances, and another Gaza hospital. On Tuesday, the U.N. General Assembly passed a non-binding resolution for a ceasefire. The U.S., Israel, and eight small countries voted against the bill, 23 countries abstained, and 153 voted for it. Radio Havana, Cuba. On Friday, the U.S. used its veto in the United Nations to block a draft resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Thirteen countries of the 15-member Security Council voted in favor of the resolution putting forward by the United Arab Emirates, while the United Kingdom abstained. The U.S. Defense Department has pushed through an emergency sale of 14,000 tank shells worth more than $100 million, this to Israel without congressional review, the Pentagon announced over the weekend. Fending off criticism over the sale from Palestinians and rights groups who says it does not align with Washington's stated efforts to press Israel to minimize civilian casualties. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told ABC on Sunday that Washington is almost constant contact with the Israeli to ensure they understand what their obligations are. 
In an address to the two-day Doha Forum event that started in the Qatari capital on Sunday, Antonio Guterres said he expected the, quote, public order to completely break breakdown soon in Gaza, and an even worse situation to unfold, including epidemic diseases and increased pressure from mass displacement into Egypt. In a rare move, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres had triggered the vote by invoking Article 99 of the Charter, a measure unused in decades, saying the people of Gaza are looking into the abyss. Quote, we have food on trucks, but we need more than one crossing. And once the trucks are inside, we need free and safe passage to reach Palestinians wherever they are. This will only be possible with a humanitarian ceasefire, and we need this conflict to end. Israeli warplanes have struck a school sheltering displaced Palestinians in a populated refugee camp in the northern Gaza Strip. The complex, run by the UN Relief and Works Agency, hosts hundreds of displaced people in the Jabalia refugee camp. Videos of the attack circulated on social media showing blood in the schoolyard and fire in the building. Citing eyewitnesses, news agencies reported several people were killed and wounded as one of the classrooms in the school was bombed by the Israeli army. The regime's warplanes also targeted a house in the refugee camp. Forty-five people there were killed. Dozens were injured. Several missing people are still under the rubble. The southern city of Kahan Yunus was also hit by a series of airstrikes and artillery shelling on various areas on Monday. In Rafah, the regime's warplanes bombed a residential apartment. Six people were killed. Most of them were children. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society says the Israeli military has opened fire on a convoy of ambulances accompanied by United Nations vehicles in the Gaza Strip as the occupying regime continues its brutal assault against the besieged enclave. The Palestine Red Crescent Society made the remarks in a statement posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, saying that six of its ambulances came under attack as they were transporting critically injured patients in Gaza. In November, Israel attacked a convoy of ambulances outside the Al-Shifra hospital in Gaza that left 15 Palestinian civilians dead and dozens of others injured. Israeli forces have raided the Kamal Adwan Hospital in northern Gaza after besieging and shelling it for several days, sources and the Palestinian Ministry of Health said. A ministry spokesman said Israeli troops were rounding up men and boys in the courtyard of the hospital in Beit Lahia, including medical staff, on Tuesday. Inside, there are patients, medical staff, and thousands of civilians who have taken refuge after being forced to flee their homes. Kamal Adwan is the only remaining health facility within the northern part of Gaza. The 193 United Nations General Assembly members has voted overwhelmingly in favor of a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in war-torn Gaza. Tuesday's resolution passed with 153 countries voting in favor, 26 abstaining, and 10 countries voting against, including Israel and the United States. While the resolution is non-binding, it serves as an indicator of global opinion. Tuesday's vote comes on the heels of a failed resolution of the United Nations Security Council on Friday, which, likewise, called for a humanitarian ceasefire. The U.S. vetoed the proposal, casting the sole dissenting vote.
Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though there's no podcast up there. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 606060 or 9700. At their website, radiohc.cu, you could stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. On to France 24. An interview with Jaber Akar, professor at the School of Oriental and Asian Studies in London. He describes the U.S. veto of the ceasefire resolution as doublespeak and what the eradication of Hamas would entail. France 24. For some analysis on the situation, we can bring in Gilbert Ashkar, a professor of development studies and international relations at SOAS, London School of Oriental and African Studies. Perhaps we can just start with your reaction to this vote of the UN Security Council. Well, it is shameful. It's uh, just a a further proof of the fact that the United States is complicit in this uh, murder of of genocidal proportions. It's a massacre of genocidal proportion. Many lawyers, international law uh, specialists, insist on the fact that we entered in the realm of what is really a genocide going on then, there, with 1% of the population killed until now, including a very high proportion of children, and uh, this is absolutely appalling. You mentioned 80% of the population displaced. More than half the buildings in the, the Gaza Strip have been destroyed. I mean, this is uh, something that we haven't seen for very, very long time in history. I mean, such intensity of killing and destruction. And the fact that the United States votes against even the idea of a ceasefire, which Antonio Guterres, who is anything but any extremist or anything like that, I mean, this is, he's really doing his job observing the UN Charter and calling for for a ceasefire for for obvious humanitarian reasons. The fact that the United States alone vote for that is is just shameful. The U.S., though, has hardened its tone against Israel. Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has said that there's a gap between, you know, what Israel is saying, what it's doing on the ground. One gets the sense that U.S. officials are perhaps conflicted. Why do you think they continue uh, to vote against a ceasefire? Well, they are practicing double speak, you know, because they are seeing the extent of the massacre, which is absolutely huge. And therefore, they, they want to dissociate themselves in some way from the massacre. But who is fooled by such an attitude when you know that not only they are confirming their unconditional support for for what uh, Israel is doing by refusing to call for a ceasefire, and more importantly, they have organized, uh, you know, an, an air bridge, a, bringing uh, weapons to Israel. You have some 200 uh, planes until now have, since the beginning of all this, have landed in Israel with U.S. weapons, and that includes 2,000-pound bombs, which are absolutely, I mean, the use of such bombs in urban concentration with such high population density is just criminal. It is actually genocidal. And this, the United States is fully responsible of that. What do you think that it would take then for the United States to finally say, you know, enough is enough? Uh, well, I think that the Biden administration put themselves in a kind of corner with that because probably uh, what uh, uh, the U.S. President Joe Biden had in mind when he took his, you know, uh, uh, more pro-Israel than thou 
kind of attitude was that he would uh, prevent the Republican right-winger who are very pro-Israel, as you know, uh, he would prevent them from outbidding him on that. And he even thought that he could you know, combine this uh, support to Israel with the support uh, to Ukraine. And he failed on, on both counts. And now he is in a position where if he were to retreat from the position of rejecting the ceasefire until Hamas is eradicated, which means until tens of uh, thousands of people killed over what you already have, which is almost uh, 24, 25,000 people killed until now. Now, if he were to re try to retreat from that, he would he would come under heavy fire from the Republican right. And that's that's the position in which he found himself. The United States and Israel, you know, argue that a ceasefire would benefit Hamas. What do you make of that argument and how would you qualify the strength of Hamas at this point? Well, the, the, the whole issue is in the fact that the, the, the goal that Israel set to itself and that the United States and some other Western government, governments supported unconditionally uh, France is the only one until now that has, um, among those uh, key Western governments that have shifted on this issue, uh, the rejection of the ceasefire. But the goal that they, they set, they supported, is the eradication of Hamas. So what does it mean to eradicate an organization that has been the government in a, in a, in a territory of 2.4 million people, uh, very, very densely populated because it's a very small strip of territory? What does it mean to eradicate an organization organization which, uh, which has been ruling that territory, which has thousands upon thousands and thousands of members uh, in every field, from health to education to everything. That are not, I mean, Hamas, all Hamas is not uh, its armed wing, which is called Azdin uh, al-Khassam. And those who organized the, the October 7 operation are uh, uh, some four to five people because such operations had to be uh, kept under a very heavy uh, secret. So, I mean, to call for the eradication of the whole organization means committing what we are witnessing, which is a massacre of genocidal proportion. The Palestinian Authority is working with U.S. officials on a plan to run Gaza after this conflict ends. But Benjamin Netanyahu has said, you know, he won't accept the Palestinian Authority as part of a solution. Just perhaps briefly, how did it's a hard question to answer briefly, but how do you see uh, the future of Gaza? Well, I mean, uh, you can summarize it in two points. Netanyahu says what you just said. He doesn't want to see the Palestinian Authority uh, back in, uh, in, in Gaza. And the Palestinian Authority says we can't rule Gaza or, or even Palestine, I mean, the, the Palestinian territories and have any, anything that would resemble a state if Hamas is not part of it, because Hamas is an important uh, dimension of the, the Palestinian public opinion and they, they can't be eradicated. So when you see how, I mean, opposite these two positions are, you understand that this is going absolutely nowhere. That interview is from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could help support this listener-funded program like a dedicated listener in Woolitz did this week, Contact information is available at my website, outfarpress.com, or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, 
Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations across the globe. We will conclude with NHK Japan. A Japanese doctor describes her recent work in Gaza with Doctors Without Borders. The Washington Post reported Israeli use of U.S.-supplied white phosphorus munitions in Gaza. Health workers in Gaza are extremely worried about the rapidly spreading infectious diseases that are happening in shelters for Gaza refugees. NHK Japan Now, a Japanese doctor has spoken to reporters here in Tokyo about the dire situation she witnessed while working in the Gaza Strip. Nakajima Yuko provided emergency services at a hospital in the southern city of Khan Yunus from November 14th to Thursday last week. She belongs to the international non-governmental organization Doctors Without Borders. She said the hospital admitted more than 5,000 injured people from October 7th when the conflict broke out through Sunday. About 1,500 more were dead on arrival at the hospital. Nakajima said she's worked in places such as Syria, but she's never experienced as much overwhelming devastation as she did in Gaza. Nakajima said she'll continue to speak about what she saw in Gaza and call for an immediate ceasefire. Meanwhile, the Washington Post has reported that Israel used white phosphorus munitions supplied by the United States when the country attacked neighboring Lebanon in October. At least nine civilians were injured in the attack. The use of white phosphorus rounds is not banned by international law, but international human rights groups say the munitions are inhumane since they can cause severe burns on human skin. They can also eject white phosphorus that burns at high temperatures. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby told the reporters on Monday that white Phosphorus has a legitimate military use for illumination and producing smoke to conceal movements. He added that when the U.S. provides items like white phosphorus, it is with full expectation that it will be used in keeping with those legitimate purposes. He also said the government will investigate to learn more. Devastation from Israel's ongoing offensive in Gaza has left hundreds of thousands of Palestinians vulnerable to infectious disease. Health workers are already stretched thin, and the rainy season is only making conditions worse. Evacuation facilities have been flooding with rainwater, drenching civilians who fled the fighting. On Wednesday, Gaza health authorities said they'd confirmed over 320,000 cases of infectious illness. Overcrowding and poor sanitation have made shelters a hotbed for disease, and wet conditions are threatening to make even more people sick. Multiple U.S. media outlets are reporting the Israeli military is pumping seawater into a vast tunnel complex. Israel has not yet commented. 
Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. On shortwave, they are now heard at 9 p.m. at 13735 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times they announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. NHK may also be found at most podcast sites. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I'm recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.